This morning, we are in the second part of a series I've just entitled, Knowing Your Identity. And as I was studying this week, this story of the emperor's new clothes came to my mind. Because as funny as it may be, for many of us, it's not really too different from our own story. It's not too different from maybe some of the things that we fall for ourselves. Back in the opening chapters of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we read that when the Godhead, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were active in creating mankind, uh, this Bible says in Genesis 1.26 that God said, Let us make human beings in our image. Let us make these human beings to actually be like us. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we read, The Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. That phrase, uh, breath of life, is also translated a blast of air, or spirit. In other words, what he's saying is that when God breathed into this lifeless form that he created out of the dust of the earth, when he first created Adam and God breathed in him, that literally Adam was jolted to life. That he came fully alive to God. And it's very important that we understand that when the Bible says that we are created in God's image, Adam was created in God's image, what the Bible is saying is that Adam was spirit because God is spirit. In a physical body, but he is spirit. We've been discussing this in our life group at our home. And basically what it's saying, what we've been talking about, is the fact that Adam was not a physical being who had spiritual experiences. Adam was a spiritual being whom God had integrated into a physical environment with physical experiences. Does that make sense? And friends, we need to remind ourselves the same is true as us, of us. If we are born again into the family of God, if we have been made alive in Christ, if we have been quickened by the Holy Spirit, if God lives within us, we are not physical beings who once in a while just have a spiritual experience. That's not what God intends. We are spiritual beings who live in a physical world. We are spiritual beings to whom it ought to be natural for us to have intimate communion with our God and our Creator who is spirit. That's why Jesus says, whoever would worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Because that is who the Father is seeking to worship Him. He's not interested in us just going through physical experiences or physical motions. That's why He says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. That's why David said, Lord, it's a broken and contrite heart that you desire. If it was gold, if it was more sacrifices and animals, I can give you all that stuff, but it's the heart. And God wants to remind us as his people that God is spirit and we are spirit. And that we've been created and recreated to have that intimate relationship with the Lord, to be fully alive to God. I don't think we have to speculate about Adam's relationship and what it was like, his relationship with God. I believe we can probably safely assume that his relationship with God was the same as Jesus' relationship, the second Adam, when he lived in this world. The same relationship that Jesus modeled for us. I believe, just like us, Adam would have walked in faith. Now, I could be wrong. I wasn't there. But I believe that if Jesus is the second Adam, and he models for us what Adam had and what Adam could have had, because Jesus himself was also without sin then I also believe what that means is that Adam enjoyed closeness with God just as Jesus did. 
In other words, he enjoyed times of intimacy in the quiet of his own, quietness of his own heart, just like we do. But he also enjoyed times of visitation whenever that was needed. And we see that through the scriptures where the Lord went to a quiet place and we assume that, that he had intimate encounters with God. There are other times when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, of course. We know about that story and what happens when he's baptized and, and the Father says from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Time and time again we see that Jesus has these visitations as they are needed. He's tempted in the wilderness after the 40 days. He, he, he overcomes the temptations and then the angels come and tend to him. How many of us understand here this morning that we can have visitations from God when we need them? The Lord knows when we need that. And it could be in a dream. It could be in a vision. It could be just driving your car and the Holy Spirit fills your car. You ever have that happen? You just sense the presence of God and you worship and, and you cry and you probably even forget what you're driving. But the Lord, he's able to do that. He can fill your car and drive your car at the same time. Don't recommend you close your eyes, but I guess he can do that too. But we can have those times of visitation but it's also, I believe, the same kind of walk that Adam had and that Jesus demonstrated. We can enjoy that kind of intimacy with the Lord, I believe, if we will spend the time to cultivate closeness with the Lord. Adam enjoyed that relationship, the Bible says, with his heavenly Father until, of course, the devil convinced him that God was somehow holding out on him. And that what Adam really needed was, if he really wanted to experience life to the full and get these things that God was hiding from him, then Adam had to become like God. And in order to become like God, you had to disobey what God had already told you and basically take matters into your own hands. Really the irony when you think of the conversation that, that, that Adam and Eve had with the devil, with the serpent, with the deceiver, the real irony is the whole time in the confusion, the manipulation of that conversation where the devil is saying, hey, if you follow me, you can become like God. The irony is Adam and Eve already were like God. In fact, Luke tells us in chapter 3, I believe it's verse 38, that Adam was called the son of God, a son of God. So that standing, that identity was already there. But in the confusion of the conversation and the temptation he gave himself to, he believed the lie. And of course, we know, we know what happened. Genesis 3 tells us, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. For Adam and Eve, you can imagine this, for the very first time, there was an awareness that something was wrong, something was broken, something inside of them had died, the light that was in them had become darkness. They had never felt this before. And what sin had done, it, let me, listen friends, it had robbed them of their confidence to be close to God. They were now afraid of God, they were uncomfortable to be in His presence. So what did they do? First of all, they covered themselves... With fig leaves, they sewed together fig leaves to make clothing to cover their nakedness, and then they hid themselves from God. Now, that might sound like a silly thing to do. You see some of the paintings, you try to imagine Adam and Eve sewing fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. I mean, that, that sounds too silly for those of us in the 21st century who are so sophisticated, right? Until we realize that we do the exact same thing. The exact same thing. The Bible says in Acts 17 that in God, in our relationship with him, we live and we move and we have our being. It is in our relationship with God. It's in our relationship with our creator. It's being made alive in our spirit because we are spirit and God is spirit. It's in that relationship that we find significance and we find meaning and we find balance in our lives. 
And friends, to the degree that we allow ourselves to drift from the Lord, uh, we allow ourselves to dry up, we allow ourselves to, do, ourselves to do things for Him rather than being who we are in Him, to the degree that we do that, to the same degree we begin to feel naked and empty. You ever notice that? And what do we do? We gather things around us and we sew them together to cover our nakedness. It can be things we buy, it can be pleasures, it can be relationships, whatever it may be. But we gather these things around us because we want to try to cover our sense of insufficiency or we want to create an image for people to see. So they actually think that we have it all together when we don't. So we're prone to do the same thing. That's why we fill our lives with so much stuff. You ever think of that word stuff? I mean, it's just kind of a silly, you know, kind of a weird word. Stuff. You got your stuff? You like that stuff? Like what stuff? What? You ever think about that? Just say the word stuff. Isn't it a dumb word? Like who came up with that? Just stuff. I don't know. Maybe part of the reason is because we just tend to stuff things into our lives, don't we? We, we stuff things into those empty places trying somehow to feel like we're fulfilled when we're really not. It was a French mathematician and philosopher, Blaise Pascal, who once said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by the Creator. That's truer than true. No created thing can fill the vacuum that only God Himself can fill. It's not that we can't enjoy what God has made for our pleasure, but when these things begin to replace the Lord... They no longer satisfy us. And not only do they not satisfy us, they actually begin to enslave us and they further alienate us from the Lord. You ever notice that? It kind of pushes you away from the Lord. In God we live and move and we have our being. I believe that all of our longings can be summed up in a longing for relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it's in that relationship that we discover our identity. It's in that relationship that we answer the most basic question to which every other question in life is connected, which is just, who am I? Who really am I? What is my life for? What is life really about? Last week, we defined the word identity as the state of being the same as someone or something else. From that same Latin word, Edom, we get identity, or identical, rather. So when we're talking about our identity, we're asking ourselves, who am I the same as? Because if you ever notice this, if you don't know who you are the same as, you're always going to try to be like somebody else. Now you may think, oh, no, no, I'm my own person. No, you're not. No, because you take your cues from other people. You look at people around you as who you think successful, who's significant, who's not, and you begin to think, that's what I want to be like. That's the person I want to be like. Those are the things I want to have too. That's, that's, that's the appearance I want to have too. And we find ourselves, because that's what the world spirit is all about. The world spirit says, you don't know who you are, I'll show you who you are. And it gives you all these different images of who you need to be, how you need to look, how you need to talk, all that kind of stuff. You don't believe me, let me ask you this simple question. Did you buy any new clothes this, this year, not because you need them, because of new styles? Anybody? Who tells you you need new clothes? Now don't be convicted if you're here with new clothes, okay? I, I bought a new shirt. 
But who tells you you have to have new clothes? Who says that every year what you've got in your closet is outdated and you need something new? What's happening? The world spirit is saying that's your identity. That's what you need to look like. God forbid you wear jeans that are, I don't know, rolled up in the bottom or plaid shirt or sorry for all, you know, folks who wear plaid shirts. I see Ben down there. I got one on too, but whatever. You know, and we just get in this cycle, and it's not just clothes. We can, we can, you know, connect it to a myriad of things. But you see, if we don't know who we are called to be the same as, because when you understand who you are the same as, you realize, I don't need all of these labels out there. I know who I am. And it's absolutely liberating. We also saw last week that if I can determine the person with whom I share the same identity, then I have found the source of my identity, the person with whom I share the same nature, rather. John says that we have the divine nature. John also says that his seed is in us. We're different people. There's something different about us within us. We understand who we are. It can be liberating. First John 3 and 1, again, say it with me. See how much our Father loves us, his children, and that's what we are. Can you kind of hear the wonder in John's voice? You know, another translation says, Behold, what manner of the love the Father has given unto us, and we should be called the children of God. And then he goes, And that's what we are. Wow. Like, it's not just, you know, kind of, it would be, you know, Behold, what manner of love. You know, some of you don't know that song, or you just never liked it. But John is saying, Not only is that true, but do you understand? That's really what we are. It's really what we are. We are sons and daughters of God. The Bible also says, we saw last week, if anyone belongs to Christ, there is a new creation. The old things have gone. Everything is made new. And we saw last week that this idea of a new creation does not mean that you are a refurbished wreck. It, it doesn't mean that God picked you up and cleaned you up. You're still the same old, same old person. He just, you know, and so you get all that baggage and all that stuff. No, he says, you're a brand new creation. You're someone now, if you're 50 years of age, you come to Christ. You are now somebody in your spirit who's never been before. So all that stuff is not who you are. Yes, we're a human. Yes, we have memories. Yes, we can have things that, that the Lord will walk us through. But he says the reason you can walk through the things, walk through the pain, walk through your past, is because now you're walking through those things from the vantage point of who you are now. And you can begin to heal those things, dismiss those things, deal with those things. But those things no longer are who you are. You're a brand new creation, entirely new creation, with your identity in the one with whom you share your very nature, which is Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean, as we said, that I'm God. What it does mean is that I'm family. I'm a blood relation. And I've been given every privilege as a member of the family of God. That's awesome. You see, we, we kind of lose the context in our culture today because we don't understand kingdoms and palaces and royal families and, and lineage and all that kind of stuff. That, that's why it was so important in, in Bible times. And you read in the genealogies in the, in the opening chapters of Matthew there and going on. You can kind of read through that. I preached a message once called Levi's Genes. You know, just all these genealogies. And sometimes we skip over them. Begat, 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 begat. We skip over that. But we, we fail to understand that in the culture that to say who you came from, what family you came from, it already determined what kind of person you basically were. 
it says something about your character, something about who you were as a person. Oh, you're part of that family. It was just naturally assumed that you would be like them. And the Lord wants us to understand that the same is true of you and me if we are truly his sons and his daughters. When you're made a new creation, the Bible says, that becomes your real identity. Your false identity are all the labels that the enemy, that Satan and other people want to put on you that are contrary to what Jesus says. That's not who you really are. Your real identity is who he says you are. Satan is a deceiver. We shared a few weeks ago how Satan is an accuser. What does he do? Just like those two swindlers in Anderson's tale, he'll try to convince you that the clothes and the labels that he weaves for you, that they will cover your nakedness. And you know what? If you buy into the lie, you have moments of revelation when you realize that what you're chasing after, what you're doing, what you're investing in is unusually stupid. It's not who you are. It doesn't satisfy because it doesn't speak to who you truly are. A.W. Tozer was an American preacher back in the early mid-1900s, and he said this. He asked this question, or said this rather, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Your picture of God is the single greatest influence on your life. If you correctly define who God is, you will correctly define yourself. If you get God wrong, you'll get yourself wrong. For example, if you imagine that God is just a judge, then you will probably go through your entire life, as sincere as you may be, always feeling like you never measure up. Always feeling some degree of guilt or shame. Always feel like you're missing the mark. Always feel like you're falling short. You'll always feel, you'll, you'll, you'll never have this sense of joy. Like the joy of the Lord is just a foreign concept. What do you mean joy? I'm just striving to keep him happy. That's what you'll think if he's a judge. If your idea of God is that is somehow he's distant, then you'll convince yourself that you can't know him, that you can't hear his voice, that you can't walk with him. You'll convince yourself, and somehow you'll even spiritualize it, that you're being humble thinking that way. And so you'll end up living a Christian life that's based on, as Scripture says, doing what seems right in your own eyes. In fact, you even become kind of like a, a little God in your own little world. You mean well, but you don't expect to hear anything. You don't know what the Father really wants because he's far, far away. So you just kind of live the best you can, and you hope against hope that one day when you stand before him, the fact that you said a sinner's prayer 30 years ago will be enough to get you in. But again, there's no joy. There's no freshness. The, the blessings of the Lord being new every morning is a foreign concept. You see... What you think about God will determine what you think about yourself. Uh, Ted Decker said it very well. He said, your view of God matters because it is not what you believe yourself about yourself that defines you. It is what God knows about you that defines you. What you believe about yourself only defines the experiences that you have in life. Your view of God matters because if you understand God correctly as he reveals himself in his word regardless of what you may feel he tells you who you are he tells you what he thinks about you and if you understand that then you look at yourself properly and life can begin to change 
But if you don't see yourself as God sees you and you believe what you see and what you think about yourself, what does that do? That defines your experiences in life. It defines what you expect. It defines how you, how you uh, deal with issues, problems, whatever it may be. It totally depends on that. How you see God determines how you see yourself. And so I want to ask you this morning, in your eyes, what is God like? Think about that. In your eyes, how does he really think about you? There was an interesting question that we posed to our small group the other night, and it's a hard question. I don't think any of us were very quick to answer. We really had to think hard. But if I was to ask you to strip away every human label you have, that you're a man, a woman, a student, a parent, a boss, an employee, a Baptist, a Pentecostal, a Catholic, if you could strip all those labels aside, what would you say if I asked you this one question? And the question is, who are you? Who are you? No, think about it. I said the same thing, well, I'm a son of God. And that's true. But am I really? Do I live like one? Is there expectancy in my heart as a son would have, as a daughter would have? Or do I really still find significance or my cues in the hats I wear, how people see me? You hear what I'm saying this morning? Let that sink in. Strip away everything you look for significance in. Whether it's the love of your children, whether it's being on the platform with a microphone, whether it's being in a position in the office, a corner office, whatever it may be, the things that you think make you significant, strip it all away and ask yourself, who are you? Who are you really? Who do you really know yourself to be? And are you content to be that if you have none of this? If you have none of those labels, do you really understand who you are in God's eyes? Let me just focus on one area here before we move into the Lord's table in a few moments. In Isaiah 49, God asked this question, and this goes to our question, what is God like? How does he really think about us? The Lord asks, can a mother forget the baby she has nursed and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. We all know that a pregnant woman always starts to act and feel like a mother long before her child appears in the world. In fact, when the baby finally arrives, I've heard many a woman, and my wife as well, that were absolutely shocked and almost terrified at the intensity of love that they feel for this this child that they've just given birth to, that they've seen for the very first time. In fact, if I was to ask most of us here this morning, what's one thing that stands out about your mother? Most of us would probably say it's her love. Because it's an absolutely amazing thing that we could be loved by someone who loved us even before they saw us. That somebody actually loved me, a woman named Pearl Patterson loved me even before I was conscious of me. I can't even remember the first few years, a couple years of my life. Anybody? It's a blur. I don't remember a thing. I don't remember a thing. Because your identity with your mother is so interconnected that first couple years of your life. You're just, you're just one. It's an incredible love that a woman has for her child. 
a love that goes back so far, keeps on loving you, even when you're not easy to love, and goes on loving you no matter what. It's absolutely amazing. Now remember this. How you see God will determine how you see yourself. And we can only truly see ourselves or can only truly understand God and thus see ourselves when we understand how God has revealed himself to us. And friends, that's why it's so important. There's another message, but that's why it's so important to be in the word of God. God's word is a love letter to you. You will not know God apart from his word. You just can't. It's his revelation to you. It's the only way you can know him, and he will reveal wonderful gems to you. But he reveals himself to us in the way he has chosen. And one thing he wants you to lay hold of this morning is that he began loving you before you were even born, and he goes on loving you no matter what. Listen to what, Jeremiah, what the Lord says in Jeremiah. He says, I have loved you with what? An everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Now, how many believe that God is omniscient? He knows all things, always has, always will. It's a good, you can raise your hand. It's a good place. It's not a trick question. So, I don't know, Paul, you're setting me up. It's true, okay? Think about this. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, an eternal love, an endless love, an unceasing love, an unquenchable love. That's how I loved you. What is God saying? I have loved you with an everlasting love. He calls you by name and he says, I have loved you for as long as I have been God. You get that? I've always known you and I've always loved you. Even before, not only before you were born, before you were thought in your, parent, in your parents' lives, I have loved you ever since I have known you. I have loved you forever. There has never been a moment in eternity past where God has not known you and God has not loved you. There was never a point when God, I don't, I don't get this, but I believe it's true theologically. There was never a point when God started loving you. He just loves you. And there will never be a moment when God will give up on you or God will stop loving you. His love for you is endless. It's a never-ending love. Can a mother forget the baby she has nursed and have no compassion on the child she has born? He's saying, well, even if that's possible, and for some maybe it is, but even though she may forget, I will not forget you. A mother's love goes back so far, it runs so deep, that it's almost impossible for most of us to imagine a mother losing all feelings for her child. And if a mother could not forget the child, God says, a child that lived inside her once for only nine months, God says, how do you think I can forget you and not love you when I've known you and loved you forever? It wasn't just nine months. I've always known you and I've always loved you. Now, how do I know that God loves me? Because he says in that scripture, he says, I have drawn you with loving kindness. What did Jesus say in John 6? No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. So you see, if I'm here this morning and I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it is proof that God has drawn me. And the reason he has drawn me is because he loves me with an endless love. Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesians. For he chose us in Jesus when? Before the creation of the world. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and, of course, his daughters. What does predestination mean? A whole whack of stuff. But let me just put it this way. In the context of the scripture, I believe predestined is simply just another way of saying that if you became a Christian just last week, 
God wants you to know he didn't start loving you just last week. He has loved you forever. What happened last week was the result of a loving plan that God has always had for you to bring you to himself. In John 17, Jesus is referring to you and me when he says to the Father, he's praying, he says, Father, you sent me and you have loved them. Talking about us this morning as well as the disciples, you have loved them even as you had loved me. That's absolutely astonishing. Get, hear it again. You have loved them even as you have loved who? Me. What does that mean? God is saying, not only have I loved you for as long as I've been God, not only have I loved you for as long as I've loved Jesus, I love you as much as I love Jesus. I mean, let that sink in. I know some of you are already thinking Swiss chalet. But, but let it, you know, God loves you more than Swiss chalet, right? Unless you get the barbecue sauce, and that's, oh. But do you understand what I'm saying this morning? You see, how you see God determines how you see yourself. What you believe that God knows and believes about you determines what you actually begin to be as a son or daughter of God. What you actually begin to expect. And friends, there's a whole lot of difference between expectation and expectancy. You see, a lot of us have expectations. Well, if I'm a Christian or God's on my side, yada, 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 then I have expectations. And we have this little box that God has to operate within. But when you have expectancy... Expectancy is the life of God within you. It's that sense of always being surprised by the Lord, not knowing what he has around the corner, but I know that everything about him is good. Everything about him is good. Even if my circumstances are good, aren't good, he's good. It's expectancy. That's what the Lord wants to be filling our hearts if we really understand who we are and we understand who he is. We need to understand this morning, friends, that God's love for us is our only hope as sinful, broken people. Please understand that if you want to come to God, don't wait until you can come to him on the basis of your own goodness. It's never going to happen. And you don't need to wait until you're good enough. You just need to come on the basis of his love for you, not on your own goodness. And more importantly, never stay away from him when you feel like you've not been good enough. I love what David said in the 25th Psalm. He said, according to what? Is it up there? According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. You are good. What's he saying? Father, I just come before you, not because of what I feel, not because of what I've done, not because of what I haven't done. I come before you because I believe your word, and your word says you love me, and you've always loved me, and it never changes. So no matter how condemned I feel, how dirty I feel, how unfit I feel, I don't come on the basis of any of those labels, any of those feelings. I come on the basis and the authority of your word that says you love me with an everlasting love and you have drawn me to yourself and so I come. And if there's sin, I confess my sin. Whatever I need to deal with. But Lord, I don't stay away from you. I come. God's love for us, friends, goes back further than any sin we've committed. So don't believe for a moment that if, God's love, if God loves you today, that somehow you can lose some of that love tomorrow. Or that if you mess up tomorrow, that somehow God's going to love you less than he loves you today. His love doesn't change. That's a human love as we saw in the video. 
His love doesn't change. It doesn't mean we don't take sin serious. We do because our sin can harm us. Our sin can hurt God's heart. But yet God will tenderly discipline us in order to get us back on track. But understand this. As he disciplines you and me, his love for us does not change. That's why it's so important. If I can give you a little tip on parenting 101. It's so important. When we discipline our children, that we discipline out of wisdom and control, but immediately, once the discipline is understood, we embrace and we love them. And we affirm them. You see, humanness says, if I have to discipline you, well, then you're just going to go in shame and, you know, judgment into your room for the next couple days or the next several hours, whatever it may be. You're going to know that I'm mad at you. No, you see, our children can know that what they've done has upset us. But why it's so important after we've made the, the discipline clear and it's come from a heart of love, we say, now give me a hug. I want you to know I love you. Tell me you love me. You understand? You're not being wishy-washy. You're not compromising. What are you doing? You're helping your child to understand that discipline does not mean a lack of love. That your love has not changed just because you're disciplining. What does the scripture say? God disciplines us because he loves us. Amen? So you discipline. You make sure things are understood. And then you embrace. And God wants us to understand the same thing. If he's working discipline in our lives, it's because he wants to get us back on track. He wants to spare us from something. He wants to grow us. But in all of the discipline, he says, but I love you. I love you, and my love for you has not changed. And yet many of us have spent our Christian lives thinking that we have to do certain things before God will love us. And it's left a lot of people really messed up spiritually either feeling far from God or just feeling like they have to run around doing all kinds of dead works. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. You see, friends, the problem was never that God stopped loving us. Right back to the time of Adam, the problem was that we ran away from home. That was the issue. God's love for us never changed. But you know, one of the beautiful, most beautiful truths in the story of the prodigal son, if you know the story, a wealthy young man grew up in a wealthy, loving home, said, I want to leave, I want my money now, and he went and he wasted it all, spent it, whole fortune, probably the equivalent of millions of dollars on loose living, everything you can imagine, ended up just trying to make money to stay alive in the context of that story, just was feeding pigs, had absolutely nothing, impoverished, and he decided, I'm going to go back home, if not, I'm going to die here, but I'm going to go back home, maybe I can at least be a slave or a servant in my father's house. You know the beautiful thing is, when the son begins to make his way back to the old homestead, we see that the father is always on the front porch looking for him. Maybe today, maybe today he'll come home, maybe because he didn't know where he was. He just loved his son so much. And the father wasn't being wishy-washy, but Jesus told this story so that we understand that in this story we see the father's heart. And what was the father's heart? As the son came back home, from a distance, the father saw him, and he ran toward him. That's the heart of father toward you. He ran toward him. And please understand this. If you read the story, there is no word of anger. There is no word of judgment. All there is is correction. And what is the correction? Reminding the son who he is. Reminding the son who he is. The son expects condemnation and shame and punishment, but the father says what? He says, bring the robe and put it back on him. Bring the ring, put it on his finger. Bring the sandals. Prepare a feast. And friends, I want us to understand the same is true of us. The whole time that you're searching for yourself, 
in those invisible clothes that the enemy cons you into buying, invest in your life in, or those fig leaves that you sew together. The whole time we're doing that, friends, the Father is standing there, and he's holding out your robe, and he's holding out the ring, and he's holding out the sandals, and he's just waiting for you to see and to celebrate who you truly are as a child of God right now. Not in heaven someday, but who you are right now. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. As they do, I'm going to ask the elders to come as we prepare to receive the Lord's table this morning. I want to ask you this morning, friends, where is it that you are trying to find yourself? What are the labels that you wear? What are the things that you chase after? You know, we're, one of the things in our humanness, we're so caught up with novelty. That's why we like, you know, we're like ravens. We just like sparkly things. We're like, ooh, what's that? You know, kind of thing. Or, or you know, this looks, ooh, what's that? You know, we are so easy to distract. We just love the sparkly stuff. We like novelty. We've got to have something new, a new project, a new goal, a new venture, all that kind of stuff. And friends, those things are not bad in and of themselves. But as Augustine said many, many years ago, your soul will only find its rest in God. That's it. Get that lined up first. All this other stuff you can enjoy as God leads you. A lot of this other stuff you won't even bother investing in because that emptiness isn't there anymore. Your soul, your spirit finds its rest in God. Get that relationship first, and you can actually begin to enjoy things rather than being enslaved by things. Does that make sense? What incredible love the Father has shown us that we are sons and daughters of God. That's who we truly are. I want to encourage you this morning as we prepare to receive the Lord's table just to open your heart afresh to the incredible love that God has for you. Ask yourself, do you truly understand how much you are loved by God? That doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter and we can be wishy-washy in our faith. It's not about that. But if you sin, confess your sin and he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and just get back to walking in the light with him. That's his heart toward us. But I want to ask us this morning, once again, we just bow our hearts. And brethren, feel free to come to prepare to serve communion this morning. But as your musicians just play softly, let's just bow our hearts, close our eyes just for a moment. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word and by your spirit. We don't have to reach up and bring you down. We don't have to reach down and pull you up. We don't have to try to make you in our image. You reveal who you are, and you ask us, Lord, simply to live in and understand and bask in your love for us, and that everything, O oh Lord, we do as we walk with you is rooted in love and in joy and in peace. Father, even in times of struggle, there's a peace that passes understanding. Because, Lord, you never leave us. You never forsake us. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that every person here would just have a fresh revelation of your love for us. I pray that as we prepare to receive the emblems this morning, that you would identify in our lives, in our hearts, any areas where we are tr just striving to become. We're striving to be something other than what you've called us to be. We may even have projects. We just may have things we've given ourselves to that are just complete time wastes. And you would say, let that go. That's not who you are. That's not what you need. I have greater fulfillment for you. But it begins with an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father who loves us so much. Hallelujah. Just remain bowed for a moment.
if you're visiting this morning and you know Jesus, then you're part of the family here at Glad Tidings, and we welcome you to join us in the Lord's Supper. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I always say this, but I believe it's true. The table is not meant to keep you away from the Lord. It's a table of invitation. What we do ask before you come to share in these emblems, which we'll explain in just a moment, we ask you to respond to the Father drawing you right now. God is drawing you by his Holy Spirit. He's drawing you in love. And you may not know how your life is going to change or how your life is going to get fixed up, all that kind of stuff. No, you see, you're trying to come to God on the basis of your goodness. If I can just get fixed up, then I'll come. God says, no, you come on the basis of my love for you. I love you. I'll fix you up. It'll begin by making you a brand new person. I'll make you alive. I'll breathe in you. And you'll come alive to me. You'll be born again, a brand new creation. And then we'll start walking together. And we'll start growing. And you'll grow from freedom to freedom to freedom as you walk with God by his Holy Spirit. So I want to pray this simple prayer. And if you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, I don't know God, but I want to know him. I want my sins forgiven. I want this new life you're talking about. I want to be a son or daughter of God. We're all going to pray together, but I want to ask you to pray this from your heart by faith and receive Jesus. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that through Jesus Christ, you made a way for me to be forgiven and cleansed and made brand new and to have a relationship with you. I don't know how you do it, but I trust you this morning. I sense your presence, and I feel your love, and I surrender to your love, and I admit that I am a sinner that needs to be saved from my sin. Forgive me, Jesus. Save me. Breathe in me and make me come alive to know you and to love you and to walk with you from this day forward. I surrender my life to you right now. In Jesus' name.